They say that confession is good for the soul. You've heard this, right? Confession is good for the soul. So I have a confession. Who'd like to hear it? All right. This is it. In the mid-90s, I was involved in a multi-million dollar Ponzi scheme. Over the course of several years, I stole millions of dollars from unsuspecting people in South Florida. For those who don't know, a Ponzi scheme is an investment fraud that pays off early investors dividends from money that's gained from later investors. The trick is to talk people into investing into imaginary enterprise, and they get a huge return on their investment and in turn invest even more. All the while, I was, I was funneling the majority of that money into an offshore account. Over time, things started to heat up. Investors were becoming suspicious. Regulators were starting to ask questions. So in the end, I, I shut the whole thing down and I disappeared with the cash. I created a new identity, a new life in a new place. I had a job, I got married. I, I lived a relatively simple life under the radar. But of course, at some point, this all catches up with you, doesn't it? Multiple federal agencies had been investigating. The U.S. mail service inspectors were involved because I'd used the mail, which made it mail fraud. And finally, I ended up on the FBI's most wanted list. Paul McDonald wanted for mail fraud and theft by swindle. I know this is really hard to believe, but this is what actually happened. I'd, I'd finished up work one day and I was headed home. I was just dead tired. And so I literally just crashed on the living room floor and I was in such a deep sleep. You know what this is like, right? So I heard a loud pounding on the door and, and, I, and I was like not even quite awake and didn't know who I was or where I was. And I, I staggered to the front door. The loud pounding continued. So I opened the door just a crack to look to see who it was. And immediately the door was, was forcefully pushed in on me. And the next thing you know, there's two men in suits standing there. And they identified themselves as FBI agents. They showed me the warrant they had. And there I found myself in handcuffs, in my underwear, in my foyer. Only later did I find out from a neighbor who was a police officer in Rochester that multiple agencies had involved in, in serving this warrant, including the Rochester Police Department. And for a couple of hours at my dining room table, they interrogated me. All the while, I was proclaiming my innocence. But they had done their homework. They seemed to know everything about my life, my friends, my family, even distant family that I hadn't seen since I was a kid. And they had blurry pictures of me and identification documents all linked to me. And at some point, my wife Peggy comes home, and, and you can imagine how confused she was as she joined us at the table. This was all news to her. And at one point, as I continued to plead my innocence, one of the agents pulled out the, the best photograph they had of me during my time in South Florida, and they compared it with my face. And then between the two of them, they, well, they started to express some doubts whether or not they had the right guy. And after two weeks and another round of interrogation by the FBI, I was told that all of this was the result of identity theft. Not only was my social security number, my driver's license, my passport recreated, but this very, 
very enterprising criminal had picked a person that could pass as his identical twin brother. I was the victim of identity theft. And we are faced almost daily with with headlines about the the latest uh, security breaches. So retail chains, banks, and, and healthcare institutions are all targeted. Sensitive personal data from millions of people are compromised. Firewalls are hacked, passwords are stolen, and confidential data is downloaded and it's traded on the dark web. Estimates of the number of victims are in the millions and the, and the economic impact is in the billions. The Federal Trade Commission says that for the average person, the average victim of identity theft will pay $2,200 to recover their identity. And so we take precautions. We change our passwords, we buy software, and we subscribe to services that, that protect our identity. But I would suggest that for all this time, effort, and money that we're expending to protect our personal uh, identity from identity theft, we are largely neglecting a significant area of our life. We've left ourselves wide open and vulnerable for a different kind of identity theft. As a child of God, you have a firmly established spiritual identity. The Bible tells us that we are created in the image of God. That's your spiritual identity. From the beginning of time, God has defined our spiritual identity. But I'm afraid that many of us have allowed other voices to define who we are. Now, to be clear, we never actually lose our identity in Christ, but for sure, we live our lives as if we have. One of the most tragic states that we can find ourselves in is living our lives as believers, not believing what God says about us. I think we'd be hard-pressed to think of any problem that we face which at its foundation isn't the result of a failure to see ourselves as God sees us. A failure to believe what God says is true of us. This is how I define spiritual identity theft. Forgetting the truth about who God says you really are. Failing to see ourselves as God sees us and believe what God says is true of us. So new Christian, old Christian, not yet a Christian, I think we're all vulnerable. And spiritual identity theft is real practical implications for our lives. Because when we suffer from spiritual identity theft, our behavior changes. It's hardwired in in who we are. We'll always live consistently with who we believe ourselves to be. Our behavior, our attitude tells the tale. So do we believe that we are loved by God? Or do we feel like we're all alone? Do we believe that God is in control? Or are we calling the shots? Do we believe we are freed from sin? Are we slaves to our moral mess-ups? And do we believe that we're forgiven once and for all, or do we still need to work at being forgiven? So much of the pain and confusion in our lives is, is rooted in how we see God and how we see ourselves. So this is our thesis for today. A lie accepted as truth will be the truth you live by. This is known as the illusory truth effect, defined as a tendency to, to believe false information, to be correct after repeated exposure. 
Study after study has shown a, a staggering inability for people to discern a lie once it's been repeated as truth multiple times. It turns out that this is an all-too-human trait. A lie accepted as truth will be the truth you live by. We easily become victims of spiritual identity theft by accepting as truth the subtle lies and, and sometimes not so subtle lies of the culture around us. Look, sometimes people we believe as friends tell us lies that we eventually believe as truth. We live in a world that daily tries to steal our identity in this way. A world that's telling us a lie, telling us a something other than what God tells us. The world says, we are alone. God says, no, you're adopted. The world says, you're powerless. God says, no, you have unimaginable power. The world tells us that we're lost, but God says, no, I found you. You're, you're mine. The world tells us that we are a victim. God says, no, no, no. You are victorious. I'd argue that this is a problem that, that almost every one of us needs to confront because the downside is, is significant. The apostle Paul warns us about a, a downward spiral that our lives will take when we live a lie like it's the truth. This is what he says to people in uh, his letter to the Romans. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served created things rather than the creator. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So the inevitable outcome of living a lie like it's the truth is that we will, we will mold and we will model our life on a lie. Paul says we will make gods out of the things that we decide are ultimately important. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. Here's the definition of idolatry. Anything other than Jesus that we look to for ultimate significance, security, or satisfaction. So how is it that we, we guard ourselves against exchanging the truth about God for a lie? Well, I think it's the company we keep and it's the voices we listen to. And sometimes these are the voices that seek to steal our identity. As you remember our definition, forgetting the truth about God, who God says we really are. And if you put your trust in Jesus, if you're seeking to follow him, the truth is that your identity in Jesus is permanently secure. But the company we keep and the voices we listen to have a powerful influence on our lives. The culture we live in has a powerful influence on our lives. And the tragic truth is that many of us live our lives believing in this lie. We live our lives as if our identity has been stolen. But we are not powerless to fight against this human tendency. But if we're going to do battle with the influence of the company we keep and the voices we listen to, we have to understand that the voice behind the voices is the voice of our enemy. Now, I recognize that, that the Satan and the devil are not much in vogue these days. You may wonder if serious people can really take, and take uh, Satan seriously. And I get that. But if we take Jesus seriously, we need to take Satan seriously. Why? Because Jesus took him seriously. All over the Bible, we read about how Jesus took Satan seriously. 
as he did many times, Jesus uses the image of, of sheep to describe those who follow him. In one of his parables, Jesus says that we should, we should recognize and follow the voice of our shepherd. And he cautions us to beware of, of voices that seek to steal our identity. And Jesus is comparing and contrasting voices we choose to follow or voices we should choose to ignore. The voice of the good shepherd Jesus or the voice of the imposter. And this is how he describes the voice of the imposter. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy your identity, which will ultimately lead to destruction. But Jesus promises that through him and him alone, you have your identity and your life. So the theft of data and passwords and our, and our financial identity is a relatively new phenomena in the modern digital world. But we discover in the Bible that the enemy has been the voice of spiritual identity theft from the very beginning. In fact, the very first recorded instance of spiritual identity theft happens in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. It will help us to, to put into context how we all too easily fall victim to the voice of the enemy. It's helpful for us to see the very origin of the first great lie. I started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Satan stole the identity of Adam and Eve and in turn stole our identity as well. Satan deceived Adam and Eve into believing that, that God had selfish motives for not allowing them to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan came to Eve as a serpent and he, and he subtly twisted the truth into a lie when he suggested to her that God had not really forbidden the fruit for her good but was rather keeping good stuff from her. That sounds familiar, right? The tricks of his trade are the same then as they are now. Lies, doubt, deception, envy, discontent, pretense. His end game was clear to cast, to cast doubt and to cast suspicion in the heart of Adam and Eve. To steal, kill, and destroy the identity they had in God and cause them to doubt God's love for them. To question his word, to question his will for their life. And it worked. They believed Satan's lie more than they believed God's promises. It was a cosmic betrayal, and it changed the course of all humankind. That very first identity theft has been followed by, by a history of identity theft. It's the friends we keep, and it's the voices we listen to. We're living in an age of, of great division. The voices are loud, and they're growing louder. It's confusing, and it's, and it's stressful. But listen, you are not the person the enemy says you are. Remember that your identity is secure in Jesus, which means you have a choice. You don't have to listen to the lies and the condemnation that you may experience in your lives. See, the identity thief says that we are a sinner. He says that we're a disappointment, a failure, a weakling, 
and a doubter. Now, without doubt, all of us are these things at some point in our lives, but they are not what defines us. Our true identity, the way that God sees us, not a sinner, but righteous. Not a disappointment, but an achiever. Not a failure, but an overcomer. These are the words of Scripture. Not a weakling, but strong. Not a doubter, but faithful. But God. But God is here to remind us that we are a victim of identity theft. God is here to remind us that identity doesn't rest in in what you've done. It rests in whose you are. And if you are his, that is what defines us. The world says our identity is, is rooted in what we've done, but God says our true identity is rooted in who we know. Perhaps you have a church background or a, or a spiritual understanding that's tricked you into thinking that our relationship with God was about performance. This understanding is, is way more common than you think, and our own nature and, and the nature of culture just reinforces it. It's the religion of, it's the religion of works, and it's a lie. Timothy Keller was a a pastor and an author, and this is how he contrasts the difference between religion and the gospel. He says, religion is, my identity is built on being a good person. But the gospel says, my identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on Christ alone. So if we are to avoid identity theft, if we are to get to the foundation to, to answer the simple, profound question, who are you? Who does God say you are? Who does the Bible say you are? How are we to answer the really big question, who are you? The answer to this question is is really written all over the Bible. But in one place we find such a, a succinct, clear answer that I think it's worth spending some time there. We find the passage in a letter called 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 2, and it's towards the very, very end of your Bible. If you hit maps, you've gone too far, so back up a little bit. Who are you? This passage was written by a follower of Jesus named Peter, and I think Peter is maybe uniquely qualified to help us understand this question because Peter himself was asked a very similar question many times. Aren't you one of his disciples? And at times, that was an easy yes for Peter. It was easy to be associated with Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000, when a triumphant miracle was performed by Jesus, aren't you one of his disciples? Yes, of course I am. Healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, aren't you one of his disciples? Yes, of course I am. Or the time that Jesus walked on water and he invited Peter to walk with him. Aren't you one of his disciples? For sure, an easy yes. Yes, I'm one of his disciples. But then the going got tough. Jesus has been arrested and he's he's subject to a sham trial and and Peter is, is lurking in the shadows. He's afraid for his life. Aren't you one of his disciples? was the actual question by a teenage servant girl as Peter 
Watch the events unfold in the shadows, in the distance. Aren't you one of his disciples? To which he answered, nope, don't even know the guy. Peter was having an identity crisis. You see, Peter had some assumptions during his time with Jesus. Peter was convinced that Jesus was going to be a, a certain kind of savior, the kind of a savior who would, who would set up an earthly kingdom and an earthly rule. And Peter thought that perhaps he might be the chief of staff of this new Jesus government. Aren't you one of his disciples? Nope, I don't even know the guy. Peter has had his spiritual identity stolen. But at the time that this passage was written, Peter's identity crisis is long over. And there's a marvelous narrative in the, in the book of John, chapter 21, and you should take time to read it in full. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and he's spending time with his disciples, including Peter, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's like old times. And Peter, for his part, was deeply remorseful for his betrayal. And Jesus powerfully restores him and gives him grace. And Peter is better because of it. He becomes, goes on to be, to be bold in proclaiming the gospel. So again, I think Peter is uniquely qualified to give us all advice on spiritual identity. So let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Peter is going to give us all six foundational stones to build our, our, our uh, spiritual identity on. This is what he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You'll also notice that, that much of the language that's used in this passage is, is a little unfamiliar, maybe even a little archaic, and there's a good reason for this. You see, Peter is addressing people who have a firm foundation and an Old Testament understanding of God. Phrases like royal priesthood and, and holy nation are, are pulled directly from the context of the Old Testament. And Peter is simply seeking to give new understanding to these images through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's showing us how these images apply directly to those who have put their trust in Jesus. And then in quick succession, Peter gives us six descriptions of our true identity, six ways of answering the big question, who are you? First, he says, you are a chosen people. A chosen people. And when Peter says that you're a, a chosen people, he's pointing out that you have been, that you've been called out. You've been chosen from, from among, uh, many different peoples, called out from an almost endless variety of races and, and cultures. And what is the distinctive here? It's not all the races or all the culture. It's the, it's the chosenness. That's the distinctive. We are chosen. That's our identity in Christ. If you put your life under the authority of Jesus, you are now part of a chosen people. 
Nothing you've done or ever will do will get you chosen. You didn't earn it. You can't jump through any hoops to get it. God himself chose you. And I don't know about you, but that, that simply stuns me. It humbles me. It gives me a, a deep sense of joy. Some of you may share the experience I had as a, a kid growing up in elementary school. I was a skinny, scrawny kid. And when it came time to play a recess game of kickball, I was often one of the very last ones chosen. If your experience in this world is being left out, if your identity in this world is not being chosen, if you struggle any way with with feeling like you don't fit in, like you don't belong, please listen. You're invited to live a life in a new reality, a new identity in Christ, which declares you to be part of something of ultimate importance. Your true identity, you are a chosen people. God has said yes to you. And so first God has said yes to you, and then we find out that we are part of a royal priesthood. And the cultural context of this lies in the fact that that priests before the time that this was written were a necessary middleman between sinful people and an all-holy God. The priest, and in particular the, the top priest, had an access to God that no one else had. But because you are a people chosen by God, you can fire the middleman. You see, God, on your behalf, has provided Jesus as the one and only mediator between sinful man and holy God. As a royal priest, you now have direct access to God. And the royal, royal priest is also a, a teaching and a, and a sharing role. And Jesus himself told us that our, our chief aim as chosen people is this, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We are to become gospel fluent, able to speak truth from the Bible in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Your true identity, you're a royal priesthood. You have direct access to God. And so we see that God has said yes to you and that you have direct access to God. This chosenness, this this priesthood places us in the very presence of God. And so Peter goes on to say that we are a holy nation. You may know this, holy simply means to be be set apart for God. When When we are told that we are a holy nation, our new identity is a people that is set apart. Set apart for God's purposes. Set apart for good works, to serve him and and to worship him. This separateness from the world. Look at what Paul says about believers. He says, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Your true identity, you are a holy nation. Set apart for God's purpose in your life. Because God has said yes to you, and because you have direct access to God, and because you are set apart for God's purposes, we next find out that we are 
God's special possession. So God has taken possession of you. Perhaps a better understanding is that, is that you are God's inheritance. He chose you to spend eternity with him. And this is an amazing truth that should, should drastically change how we see our identity. Because when the world steals our identity, we can feel mocked and abused and rejected. But our new identity in Christ says that we are owned and treasured by God. It's vitally important for us to live in this truth because, because if we don't, we risk adopting the mindset the world has about us. We risk having our identity stolen. So this pair of shoes, and it retails for a little less than $200. Seems like a lot of money for a pair of shoes in my mind, but, but earlier this year, this actual pair of shoes sold for $2.2 million. What could be the possible reason why someone would pay $2.2 million for a $200 pair of sneakers? Well, if that particular pair was once worn, once owned by basketball legend Michael Jordan during the 98 playoffs. As believers in Jesus, we may feel that we are a cheap pair of sneakers kind of people. We're actually a $2.2 million kind of people simply because we are God's possession. If we truly understand that we, are, that we are God's possession, his inheritance, his very own special possession, it will deliver us from many of the, of the insecurities and the fears that we have. Because the world says, you're not enough. You'll never be enough. You're not smart enough. You're not fast enough. You're not rich enough, young enough, old enough, attractive enough. But God has chosen you as his own special possession, which makes you infinitely valuable. Your true identity, you are God's special possession. You belong to God. And because God has said yes to you, and because you have direct access to God, and because you are set apart for God's purpose, because you belong to God, we next discover that once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, when God first chose us to make us royal priests, to set us apart as holy, he first saw us in a sin-soaked world. He saw us in the middle of our moral mess-ups, and he didn't treat us with the judgment that we deserved. That's mercy. Mercy. The amazing truth is that when God chose you, he didn't turn away in indifference or in judgment. Instead, he showed us mercy to save us. And because God has said yes to you, and because you have direct access to God, and because you are set apart for God's purposes, because you belong to God, and you daily benefit from his mercy, we discover our final identity in Christ, which is this. We are foreigners and exiles. Now, it might not seem like a blessing, 
But it truly is. And the reason Peter chooses these words to describe our identity is that we need reminding that, that this world is not our home. Because our God-given identity is that we are chosen and set apart and royal priests and, and a holy nation, shower of mercy, we are distinct from the world around us. Our lives at times are going to show a, a sharp contrast with the world around us. We will feel and will oftentimes be treated as foreigners and exiles. Here's the deal. We're enlisted as people to build God's kingdom. That's our citizenship. And all Peter gives is a powerful summary. He says this, we are called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are called out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has called you out of the darkness of your stolen identity to the light of a new identity in him. Can we be powerfully encouraged by that? God himself has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And if we're encouraged by that, can we be motivated to carefully examine the company that we keep and the voices we listen to? And when we are firmly established in our identity in Christ, then we can pursue our destiny without distraction. So what is our destiny? Well, Peter tells us in verse 9, because God has chosen you for a purpose and God has set you apart uh, for a purpose, why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's your calling. That's your destiny. To make a big deal out of Jesus. To shout out just how excellent he is. To give him all the honor and glory. Spiritual identity theft is a reality in this world that, that we need to guard against. Now, the day I sat at my dining room table being interrogated by the FBI, I didn't for a minute believe what they said was true of me. I didn't believe that I was a con artist and a criminal. And if you've given your allegiance to Jesus, then your spiritual self-identity is forever secure. Can't be defined in terms of, of who you are in and of yourself or in this world. Instead, our, our identity is radically God-centered. God is the one who acted. God is the one who gave you purpose. God is the one who brought us into relationship with him. Listen. God made us who we are to show the world who he is. That's what we do. And we show the world who he is when we, well, when we worship together, when we gather together, singing, praying, studying his word. We show the world who he is when we gather together in smaller groups and, and demonstrate what deep spiritual friendship and love looks like. But we really, really show the world who he is when we reflect his love to a lost world. When we put our allegiance in Jesus, we can live life like God intended us to live. 
the world will struggle with identity theft. But as believers in the crucified, resurrected Savior, your identity can never be stolen. You have an identity protection plan bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus. His victory is is your victory or the voices that seek to steal, kill, and destroy. With Jesus, your security, your identity is safe and secure. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you all the praise and honor for the truth that our identity is forever secure in you. And Father, I pray that for all those who have who've listened to other voices for far too long, I pray that you would powerfully break the chains that have kept them captive to voices that have told them lies about who they are. And we so desire to live our lives in the freedom that comes only through our trust and faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.